Almost 30 years ago, the Wu-Tang Clan dropped a song called Cream, which means cash rules everything around me. The hook goes, get the dollar dollar bill, y'all. Now, when I was a teenager, that, that value became my value. Like, I was like, yes. JC said I had a song, too, called Money Cash, which is like, how many times can I save money and cash in different ways to sell you? That's like my prime value. That's what I'm going after. That's my dream. And I was like a teenager, junior high, like, yes, this makes sense. This is what I want my life to be about. Because what? Hip-hop preaches catchy songs. Content, often terrible, right? But catchy, like, in regards to catchy, preach better songs than I do. Sermons than I do, is what I'm saying. I don't sing. But when I think about this, I think, man, that, that is how I was formed, how I was shaped, how I was developed as a teenager. And it's taken a lot for God to save me when I was 16 and to still kind of root out those idols in my heart because that was so impressed on me as a kid. And then I come this morning to James 4, 13 through 5, 6, because we just typically pick up books of the Bible and walk through them. And we're here now, and I'm like, okay, this is confrontational. If you haven't been with us, James is direct, confrontational, serious, practical. Like, here, this is wisdom for everyday life, and he's going to get into money this morning. Get into this value of how we see money, how we uh, think about our future to get money, and our plans to, to uh, go this way, go that way. And so I'm just going to get into it. So look at it with me. I'm excited about this. James 4, verse 13. James 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you, are boast, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. All right, come now. Come now, that's getting people's attention, a, a particular group of people. And those people are people that make plans without considering the Lord. And so he's saying, hear me, hear me, listen to me, you who make plans without considering the Lord. Now, James is not rebuking these business people for their plans or for their desire to make money. He rebukes them for ignoring the Lord in those plans. He's rebuking them for their self-reliance, crafting schemes and strategies without depending on the Lord. Now, this is a danger for business people and for many of us who have some financial stability to make long-standing plans. So to be clear, because on the other side, we, we can go down a different route. James is not forbidding Christians from all forms of planning. He's not. Or concerned for the future. You cannot take this and say, Christians should not uh, uh, have life insurance or save for retirement. That's not what he's getting at. Actually, those two, based on the Proverbs, are signs of wisdom, of wise stewardship. So that's not what James is saying. The issue that James is confronting is any planning for the future that comes from human arrogance. 
human arrogance and our ability to determine the course of future events. Like it's arrogant self-sufficiency to assume that we control the duration and the direction of our lives. So he's, he's rebuking a worldview that forgets God. That's boasting in our arrogance. He says all such boasting is evil. So the reality is God is sovereign. He sovereignly directs the course of human affairs. And we are not sovereign. Do you, do you remember his rebuttal from last week? With, the, with what we were saying, and he said, what he just comes back with is, you are not God. And he's doubling down <laughs> this week. You are not the sovereign one who can uh, uh, plan for and control the direction and the duration of your life. Your life is quick and transitory. He calls it a vapor. Think about that. You, you, can you feel the juxtaposition with me? You've got this eternal sovereign God who in eternity past has existed and eternity future will exist. And you've got you with a vaporous life. It's not a word, but you know what I mean. Maybe a word. That's your life, a vapor. Vanishes quickly. So this text, this paragraph right here, is a practical application of what he said earlier, which is submit to God and humble yourself before God. He's practically working this out into our everyday choices, meaning we humbly depend on him for the duration and the direction of our lives. And, and as we've said multiple times, he's uh, leaning on or referencing Jesus' words, his half-brother, who he thought was crazy during his life, but after Jesus rose from the grave, he confessed Jesus as Lord. And he references Jesus and Jesus' words, and he reference, refer, uh, references the Proverbs. In Proverbs 27, it's very direct. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day might bring. And then Jesus gets direct, but he starts with a story. In Luke 12, 16, he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. It's a lot of him talking to himself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus makes the point with this story. That's how it is with one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So our plans are in vain if the builder of the house, the Lord, doesn't build it. So instead of arrogant self-sufficiency, we humbly depend. If the Lord wills, that's an expression of this humble dependence on the Lord, to be actively dependent on the sovereign God who rules everything. This is a different mindset than saying, ah, oh, we'll go do this and do this, and in a year we'll make this, and this is where we'll travel to. This mindset is, 
I need the grace of God, and then I'm dependent on the will of God in every facet of my life. That's humble dependence. Paul, he expressed his submission to God in his missionary trips. Acts 18, 21. But Paul said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail from Ephesus. In Romans 1.10, he's wanted to get to the, the Christians in Rome, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may not last succeed in coming to you. So this is the mindset. This is what James is telling us, pushing into us. Now let me tell you, that phrase isn't a magical phrase. Like many phrases, we can make them hollow without any meaning and just say it flippantly without the mindset behind it. So to be very clear, James is not just saying, hey, throw up these flippant words when you make plans. He's saying, actually have this attitude when you make plans. That this is how we're to view all of life, if the Lord wills. Jesus, Paul, and the apostles don't always say this phrase, but it's the mindset in all their plans for the future. So it's like the verbalization is helpful to say the phrase, if the Lord wills, but really it's about that, that mindset that's happening. And John Calvin said, this is what's important. They had it as a principle fixed in their minds that they would do nothing without the permission of God. Do you hear that humble dependence? This is what, I, I'm, I, I'm wanting to do this, but Lord, if it's your will, if you're going to allow this to happen, that's what I'm banking on. So that, that makes us humbly dependent in our planning, saying, if the Lord allows this to happen. But think, look at this other side. It humbly, uh, uh, we humbly evaluate our planning as well. Don't miss this. Is our plan in accordance with the Lord's will expressed in Scripture for his people? Doubly, we're humbly dependent, thinking, I, I want to do this plan. I want to I go here next year. I want to uh, uh, make this. I, I want to go to this house. I want to move to this neighborhood. I want to have these kids. I, I want to go to this school. I want to have the, okay, it, is this your plans? Like, are you humbly depending and thinking if the Lord allows this? And then in these plans, are they even clearly in line with God's will revealed in the word? We have to think about both of these. And then James in this paragraph with verse 17, it feels a little abrupt, but that's James. He says, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it, period. Okay. All right, James. So what he's saying, though, is that we are to consider the Lord in all our planning. We know what we're to do now. James has just told us. To not do it is sin. Now, if you get a little bigger in this thought, it's helpful because you know what we do, most of us? If you're a Christian in this room, you know what we contend towards is only focus on sins of commission, things that we've committed. So God said, don't do this, but we did it. That's the sin of commission. What James is speaking of here is the sin of omission. God told us to do something, and we didn't do it. They're both sin. They're both sin. Our sin also includes what we failed to do. So just think about what James has said up to this point, if you've been with us for this book. He said, consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. 
So when you don't consider great joy, when you face various trials, it's a sin of omission. Ask for wisdom from God. When you don't ask wisdom from God, it's a sin of omission. Be quick to listen. Control your tongue. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Grieve your sin. These are all things he's told us to do, and to fail to do them is the sin of omission. So we're clear now. We are to consider the Lord in all our planning, ultimately trusting his will for our future. But then James shifts to another group with this phrase, come now again. So James 5 verse 1. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, just know, just quick side note, uh, silver and gold don't corrode. He, James is aware of this. He's making his point with that phrase. That's how fleeting wealth is. That's how temporary money is. Let's keep going. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who moved your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. James's tone has changed from the last paragraph to this paragraph. He sounds now like an Old Testament prophet pronouncing judgment on pagan nations, telling them to weep and wail like Isaiah. Isaiah 13, 6, just so you see the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah says, well, W-A-I-L, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Well is, the, is only found in uh, the Old Testament prophets and always in conjunction or in the context of judgment. The misery coming on this group of people that James is speaking to isn't temporary, isn't a moment. He's talking about condemnation, about punishment poured out on them on the day of judgment. The corrosion of your gold and silver will eat your flesh like fire. You fan your hearts in a day of slaughter. The workers cry out from the fields. So again, he's picking up from the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, any time when God's people would cry out to God, they're crying out to God for deliverance and for justice. What these rich people are doing in secret, they maybe they think they're getting away with it, the Lord Almighty sees. The Lord of hosts is aware of. The Lord of hosts means the Lord of armies. It means there, there's a general here over all the angelic beings who do whatever he commands. He's the Lord of armies. He sees everything that's going on. He's aware of the injustice. He's holy, powerful, and determined to judge those who disobey him and don't worship him. 
who worship money instead of him. So, so James condemns these people with, with no hint of, arrogant, uh, of, of encouragement. There's no like twist of like good news or like, hey. And so what, I'm, what, what I think we can take, what seems very clear here, is that he's changed uh, who he's talking to. And who he's talking to is non-Christians, unbelievers, these non-Christian wealthy landowners who are oppressing the Christian community, which makes sense if we go back all the way to chapter 1. That this community that he's speaking to, the churches he's speaking to are, are relatively poor. And they've struggled with what? Favoritism. Because they want to get on the good side of the wealthy people. So when the wealthy people come in, they're like, oh, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. Like, come sit up in the front. But my question with this, when I read this, is why? <laughs> why, why does James, James speak this prophetic judgment against these non-Christian wealthy people in a letter written to churches? Why? And John Calvin gives two reasons, so I'll listen to him. He says, James has regard to the faithful, that the hearing of the miserable end of the rich might not envy their fortune. And also, that knowing God would be avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. So why? That they wouldn't covet, that the Christians wouldn't covet, and they would trust God to execute justice. That's why. And so, to those of you who have suffered greatly at the hands of other people, God will execute justice. In the end, oppressors and abusers will get what they deserve. And so be, be righteously angry against what has been done to you, but express that righteously by trusting God with justice. Trusting God that when he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then in time, we begin to pray for those enemies and pray that Jesus would save them and the punishment they deserve for what they did to you was poured out on Jesus to make them a new creation. For them to be loved and adopted by the Father. The rich here are not condemned for their wealth. They're condemned for their sinful use of their wealth. I say that because I don't want this text to mess with some of us and we use it to further fuel our contempt for people that are wealthier than us. Wealthy people are not inherently unrighteous. Poor people are not inherently unrighteous. More on that in a minute. But these folks, wealthy folks, have sinned. What is his list? They have selfishly hoarded wealth. They have defrauded their workers. They follow a self-indulgent lifestyle. They oppress the righteous. They have used people to gain wealth. They have worshipped money. If we love money, if we worship money, do you know what we do? We use God and we use people. Jesus stated, you have two options. 
We either worship our money or worship with our money. Money is either a tool or an idol, a tool to worship God with or an idol that we worship instead of God. If you're like, you don't, you're not cool with that, this gets a little bit too, too into your heart, I'll let Jesus tell you. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If you're not a Christian, this is a serious warning for you this morning. This is a call to serve one master. James is saying, if you don't know Jesus, you'll be judged by Jesus for your idolatry of money along with all your other sins, for your arrogance and your dismissal of the sovereign Lord. Money will fade away. Your life will fade away. Your Money cannot secure you a long life. Your money cannot secure you God's favor. Grace cannot be bought. It is a gift you must humbly receive. But the good news is Jesus is gracious and left his wealth to ransom you, to pay the penalty you deserve and to make you rich toward God. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his grace. What's his grace to you? Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. What he's saying is the treasure of heaven, Jesus, came as man on this earth and lived homeless during his ministry and was executed on a shameful cross so that you might believe in him and receive every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.3. What's every spiritual blessing? To be reconciled to God, to be forgiven, to be adopted into his family, to be loved, to be given the spirit of God, and to be given an inheritance of life forever with God. And so what he's saying is, who will you worship? Which master will you serve? So if you're not a Christian, the Spirit clearly is calling you to repent and believe, to turn from your old master and believe in the risen King Jesus. And with the, the serious warning of James, it, there's an urgency here because it's, it's not just turn, it's turn now. It's turn now because you don't know what tomorrow might bring. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the safe drive home. And so to hear this from God this morning is to hear him say, hear me and respond to me now. Come to me now. And then Christian, I wanna to speak to you as well. Because typically when we think of wealth, we have two categories, rich and poor. That, that's not the categories of the Bible. There's four biblical categories, and that is the godly poor and the godly rich, and the ungodly poor and the ungodly rich. In the Bible, the issue is not if you're rich or poor, but rather are you godly or ungodly? 
That's the issue. And so let's, let's not moralize the rich or poor. Let's strive for godliness wherever you are financially. No matter your wealth, no matter your income, no matter your debt, let's strive for godliness wherever we're at. Meaning, let's not love money and use God and people. Let's love God and be free to use money to love God and love people. Not worship money, but use our money to worship God. What does that look like practically? Well, corporately, we worship God by giving to him through our local church. Now, I told you probably six months ago, maybe it was last year, that's, it's been a long time, that this is the one thing I've confessed to you guys. I haven't done a great job on this. We were self-sufficient as a church from, I think, day one. Uh, we had committed members that were giving sacrificially, and, and it was going, and so I was just grateful. And we've never been wanted to be a place where, like, forcing guests to give to us, like there's some transactional thing here, like you, you're paying for a movie ticket. Never wanted that. And so I haven't talked about giving that much, but what I confessed last year is that I think that's to the chagrin of your discipleship. Because Jesus talks a lot about money because money reveals our hearts. It reveals what we love, what we spend with our money, what we do with our money, what we plan with our money reveals what we love, what we uh, admire, what we are about, what we are for. And so corporately, we worship God by giving to him through our local church. We give regularly and sacrificially and cheerfully to God's mission. We give because we love God and we want to make disciples and plant churches. And then individually, all of us scattered throughout the weeks, we worship God by loving our family and loving others with our money and by being hospitable and generous. In premarital counseling for years, my wife and I have said, in talking about people's budgets, I'd say, you should have a line item for generosity. You should have a line item that every month you have a certain amount that you know, uh, I want to meet needs of others. I want to come alongside people. I want to give uh, to people. I want to have this so we can have people into our home, so I can bless other people, to be hospitable and generous. That's how we worship God with our money. Why? Because we know God is the master of our money. We're not. You are not the master of your money. God is the master of your money. You are a steward of God's money. And as stewards, we use it how the master wants us to use it. And what's that for? For God's glory and to love our neighbor. So what I'm saying is let's worship God with our money instead of worshiping money. It's a trash God. It always overpromises and underlivers. One author gives five principles to help in this thinking of worshiping God with our money instead of worshiping money. Number one, Jesus is your treasure. Jesus is. Money has such a high value in our culture, but Jesus is greater. He's supremely lovely and supremely worthy. He is your highest delight. 
And in this, we guard our hearts against the idolatrous pursuit of lesser joys. Two, more money won't make you happier. I don't know if you heard me. This isn't one of those sermons where you amen a lot. This is one of those sermons I feel like I cringe a bit. That's what it is. Not because of you, because of like this hits. It's like, oof. That's it. Yeah, so if you could just make your oof more verbal loudly, that would be helpful. I know that you're, you're, you're tracking with me. <laughs> but I'll just say it again to be very honest and frank. More money won't make you happier. It won't. It won't. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, The one who loves money is never satisfied with money. So I'm just making this up. I'm just, I'm just giving you Ecclesiastes. This is what it's saying. The one who loves money is never satisfied with money, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. What do most people do when they get a raise? They raise their standard of living, and then they hope for another raise in the near future. Why? It never satisfied. Never satisfied. This too is futile. <laughs> oh, that's what he says. So true, deep, lasting joy does not come from what we possess. Let me put it this way. Money is not big enough to satisfy your soul. Only Jesus is. Money does not have the value, the immensity, the infiniteness, I don't know, of Jesus to actually satisfy the capacity of your soul to worship Jesus. Your soul has the capacity to delight in and pour out your affection on Jesus. It has the capacity to, to take in the unsurpassing value and worth of Jesus Christ, meaning your soul will never be satisfied with such a diminished value of something like money. It's not big enough to satisfy you. Only Jesus is. Number three, Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Aren't some of our best memories connected to when we were able to bless someone, be generous with someone, and give someone something more than when we got a gift? Isn't it those times that we can look back and like have a big smile on our face? It's typically connected when we saw someone need and were able to meet that need and it just blessed them. They're so thankful, like, man, that was so good to give. Yet those experiences are just confirming what Jesus is saying. It is better to give than to receive. I mean, this explains why generous people are more joyful than greedy, stingy people. And also why God, who is the most generous, is also the happiest. I just, I feel like I need to address that. Because some of you guys don't think of God as happy. And that's backwards. God is the most delighted, joyful being ever. Radiating with the joy and love. To know the Son is to know the Father who has had radiant joy in the Son forever by the power of the Spirit. 
And what does the son do in return? Turn back in exuberant worship and radiant joy in the Father through the Spirit. How do you know he's so generous? He created so that we would be enveloped in that Trinitarian community. That's how I know he's the forever happy God. So this explains why God, who's the most generous, is also the happiest. Number four, we should desire to grow in our financial giving to our church as a part of our spiritual growth. This is what I was alluding to earlier. St. Corinthians 8, 7 says, Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. And what's the context? Giving. Generous giving. And so what I, what I feel like I confess last year I want to keep growing in is I want us to grow in all the spiritual disciplines. Bible reading, prayer, corporate worship, repentance, all of them. And all of them includes giving. Giving is a part of our spiritual growth. Last one, number five. Generous stewards are storing up treasure in heaven. Storing up treasures in heaven. This is again Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust, rust, rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Commenting on storing up treasures on earth, Randy Alcorn says, why not? Why not store treasures on earth? Because earthly treasures are bad? No, because they won't last. That's why. They won't last. You're putting your hope and your joy in something that has an expiration date. He continues, as a Christian, you have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. This is the ultimate insider trading tip. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns or when you die, whichever comes first. And either event could happen at any time. And he goes on further. He like keeps pushing the point. He says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. I love that. What I'm trying to get into this is this. A wise steward invests in God's kingdom. That's what a wise steward does. A wise steward doesn't worship their wealth, but worships God with their wealth. A wise steward makes plans with a mindset of, if the Lord wills. A wise steward doesn't treat their church like a hotel, but a home. You know the difference? Or maybe I should say rental car versus your own car. Or you're like, I, I bought insurance on this. I don't care. I'm going to run this thing ragged. But you get home to your car and you're like, I got to go wash it every week. I want to make sure everything's good and clean and tidy. I'm going to drive this carefully. I will never hit a curb in my own car. There's a big shift in how we treat this family. Like a hotel or like a home, a wise steward treats this family, this church family like home. And a wise steward savors Jesus as their highest treasure. Where does this all come from? 
It all comes from, again, James 4, 7. This is the practical outworking of you and I submitting to God. Humbling ourselves before the Lord. So I'm just going to ask you to do that. I'm going to invite us to all of that. Whether you're not a Christian or you are. Whether you're wealthy or you're not. All of us are called in this to humble ourselves before the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask, please, Lord, just banking on your promise that your word will not return void, I pray that you use this by your spirit to work in our hearts and then as we hear from your word, as you speak to us, I pray that we would be hearers and doers. As James has set up this whole book, that we'd be hearers and doers. So what I pray for, meaningful action and response. I pray for people to switch masters this morning. I pray for you to be exalted and not money. I pray for spiritual growth that includes our wealth, our treasure, our money. I pray and in all of this, what would reign supreme is that you, you would be our chief treasure, our greatest delight. In Christ's name.